Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name's Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined as always by my co-host Astrid Edwards. And today we have the great pleasure of speaking to one of Australia's finest investigative reporters, Louise Milligan. She is of course a reporter for ABC Television's Four Corners where she has exposed wrongdoers particularly in the sexual assault and abuse space in a way that has not only made headlines and news across Australia and indeed the world, but has prompted royal commissions, investigations and even the legal system itself to look inward and reconsider. Her new book is Witness, which is a masterful and deeply troubling expose. It's the culmination of five years of research and I have no doubt it will win awards just as her previous work, Cardinal, The Rise and Fall of George Pell, did. In this book, Milligan looks at several people she spoke to and interviewed who have had the courage to come forward to police and to seek justice through the Australian legal system. She also speaks to her own experience of the legal system, of being cross-examined, of not being the one sitting in a courtroom and watching, but suddenly being one of the players. Louise, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman and thank you for taking some time to talk to us about Witness. Thanks so much for having me. Now, let's make something very clear to begin with, especially for those who haven't had a chance to read it yet. This is not a book about Cardinal Pell. Louise, what is Witness about and why did you want to write it? Witness is about what it's like to be a complainant of a sexual crime in the criminal justice system, particularly during the process of cross-examination and what a withering process that is and how traumatic it is and, and how I would argue unnecessarily traumatic it is and the tactics employed by defence counsel in order to do their job, which is to find a reasonable doubt in the prosecution's case. The prosecution has to prove that, for instance, a person raped another person, they have to prove it beyond reasonable doubt. So all the defence has to do is to kind of chip, chip, chip away at that wall and they will employ whatever it takes. Now, there are lots of very decent defence counsel who will just employ the sort of forensic tools that a barrister has to in order to do that. But there are also a sort of a rump Some would say an old guard, but I don't accept that it's only the old guard that's doing this, who treat the witnesses, the complainants with, there's no other way of putting it than contempt, derision. And if you think about what these people are doing, they are coming forward to talk about possibly the worst thing that ever happened to them in their lives. 
You know, for instance, for people who were victims of historical crimes, they finally, after all these years, plucked up the courage to come forward and say, I was raped by a creepy, you know, Christian brother or whatever the case may be. And they always doubted that people would believe them. They were always scared of what the reception would be. They always, whenever they thought about this crime, it brought them back to being that child again. So finally, they overcome this mountain of courage and they tell their story to police. And police are actually quite good these days. They've had a lot of training in trauma-informed policing. But then they go to the court system and they meet these barristers who work for themselves, who haven't had a whole lot of training in trauma-informed cross-examination techniques. And in fact, in some cases, scoff at the very notion. So they're brought to a place where they have to describe this terrible thing that happened to them. They have to relive this terrible experience. And at the same time, are treated in a way that no other forum in society treats a human being. These are vulnerable people and it doesn't matter how resilient they are or how well-educated or, you know, or, or whatever the case may be, they're still vulnerable. And for me, there was a very politicising moment and that was when I gave evidence in the committal proceeding of Cardinal Pell and I was cross-examined for a full day by Robert Richter QC who was representing the Cardinal. And the experience was just unbelievable. I couldn't... I, it's, it's very hard to describe. I mean, uh, that's why I think I needed to write a book about it. But the next day, you know, I, I, I couldn't get out of bed. And I just thought, if this is how I feel and I've got all these sort of benefits of a law degree, 20 years of working around this area as a journalist, the ABC behind me, a publisher behind me, and not having the residual trauma that these people have. And often they go on to be substance abusers. Sometimes they too end up in jail. Their education is often disrupted. They make poor life choices. Or sometimes they're just a little bit more vulnerable than the rest of us. Just things hit them a bit harder. They can't watch depressing movies on TV. It's too much. Their cup is too full. Put someone like that in that position. And I just thought, we can't do this to these people. We have to find another way. We have to educate barristers about what they are actually doing. But also the system needs to find a way to protect them better than it does. So that's why I decided to write Witness. I had been wanting to write it from that day when I lay in my bed, unable to get out, unable to get a glass of water. I mean, that sound, I sound like a bit of a drama queen, but it wasn't like I was thinking through in my head and then he said this and then that happened and then that happened. It was just this visceral trauma and months of stress building up to it. And interestingly, you know, I actually performed well in the witness box. I was told that by the police were happy, the, the Crown was happy, my colleagues, you know, everyone said you did a great job. I knew that I stood up to him, but 
it still didn't matter. And so often what victims have told me is that even in the case where they received a conviction or the person they were accusing was convicted, it was sort of like, okay, yeah, okay, well, we've, we've got that over with. But it didn't take away the trauma. It didn't make anything better. And in fact, in a lot of cases, it made things worse. And speaking to psychologists, as I have, who have worked with, you know, hundreds of these people, they have said to me that it often takes months and months of therapy to get people over that experience. And some of them, many of them are suicidal. And I know people and I know the families of people who have suicided or who have died through this process because it just became all too much. Louise, a moment ago you said that you feel like a drama queen. You are nothing like a drama queen. Uh, you know, you know what it's like with women, you know, like we sort of, we're hard on ourselves, we beat ourselves up and so on. But, you know, I, I am also always very, very conscious of my privilege and not wanting to seem like I'm saying I'm the victim because I'm not the victim. I'm the bystander who was able to see, to witness what goes on in this forum and I'm really glad I was because I want to be a voice for these people. I want people to read the book because I want the system to change. I want lawyers to read the book. I want lawmakers to read the book as well as people who happen to be interested or or victims of these crimes. Louise, you taught me a great deal in Witness. You know, today we're talking about justice and authority and our legal system is supposed to be the place through which we find justice in society. And as I read Witness, even though I know that the courts and the legal system fail so many of us so often, not having been in court myself, I didn't realise the intimacy of the trauma that is experienced by complainants and people who are on the witness stand. And I guess I wanted to ask, and I know there's no answer to this question, Louise, but How have we got to this point where we cede so much authority to these independent barristers who are basically given free reign to traumatise people? I think because it's ever been thus. And, uh, you know, having studied law myself, it was just accepted. This is what happens. It was seen as noble. And in fact, you know, I've said before about this and I talk about it in the book, that it's actually seen as kind of tabloid and expected to go into bat for the victim. Lawyers often kind of roll their eyes at that. The noble cause is seen as being, you know, fighting for the person that no one wants to fight for. And I think a lot of this is bound up in, you know, traditional masculinist tropes about how we win an argument and, frankly, how... Traditionally, they won this argument was by the intellectual equivalent of brute force. And it's only in recent years, I would say the past sort of 15 years or so, maybe 20, that there started to be a bit of a reckoning with this process. And we've had law reform commission inquiry after inquiry. We've had the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Abuse, the Domestic Violence Royal Commission in Victoria, the Betrayal of Trust Report in Victoria, the Canine Inquiry in New South Wales. And all of these forums have made little 
well, not little, that, that's a bit patronising, but they have made incremental changes to the system. I feel like a lot of it is banking on trusting the system to work. So it's about things like judicial directions. The judge will say to the jury, the defence counsel may have said to you that the fact that this person took 20 years to come forward is suspicious. But in fact, that's quite a, a normal thing, you know, so this is one of the directions that they give. It's quite normal for someone, for there to be a delay in reporting. And in fact, it's more likely than not with child abuse sort of offences. So they might say things like that. But the thing is, the damage has already been done. And in the minds of the jurors, the little doubts, and that's all the defence counsel needs, the niggling doubts are still there. And interestingly, after I wrote my book, and it was just, I think it was like the weekend after publication, one of my friends contacted me and said she had just got off a jury, and I had no idea, in a sexual assault matter. And she told me quite tearfully of how distressing the whole thing was because there were, you know, they had had these types of warnings, but there were a couple of, as it happens, male jurors who were holding out because of the things that the judge had warned the jury not to fixate on. It was on the verge of being a hung jury and hung juries are quite common in this. We've seen a few of them in the sort of rugby league (laughs) space. And it was only because the other jurors who felt very passionately that the things that they were putting forward as doubts, which were around dates and that sort of thing, really didn't matter that much that they got the conviction. But she said it was an enormously, you know, traumatic experience for her But it also shows that, you know, these things that they've brought in to supposedly help the process don't necessarily help the process. And in fact, you know, then there are other changes that have been made, like improper questions provisions in the Evidence Act, which go to the manner and tone of the questions and things like when questions are relying just merely on a gender stereotype or a race stereotype, they're disallowed. Um, But, you know, I just, during my evidence, watched improper question after improper question after improper question, particularly in regards to tone, which never changed, which never moved away from derision. And, yes, the magistrate did intervene, on occasion. And yes, the Crown Prosecutor did intervene, although not very often, and specifically cited this part of the Act. But it was, you know, in the space of a day, it was a handful of occasions. And I I feel like part of the issue was that they got worn down because it happened so much, you know, and the magistrate has to start worrying about, well, is there going to be an appeal point? If I keep intervening, will I be accused of an apprehended bias? Lo and behold, at the end of that proceeding, the magistrate in those, that proceeding was accused of an apprehended bias. Now, that went nowhere, but it shows the issues that Crown prosecutors and magistrates have to contend with. And in some cases, I mean, I've spoken to Crown prosecutors who say, you know, especially women, who say, you know, you cannot believe how bullying these guys are. And they do feel a bit intimidated and some of the judges feel intimidated. So, you know, my contention is in the 
book that complainants need lawyers of their own because they can't necessarily rely on these other people to protect them. And in fact, that it, certainly when it comes to the Crown Prosecutor, protecting the complainant is not really often seen as part of their role. And in fact, in some cases, they actively see it as not their role. Louise, the legal system in Australia has quite a narrow definition of sexual trauma and the varieties of sexual trauma. And my sense is that the public also has a narrow view of what constitutes sexual trauma and what sexual trauma looks like and what behaviour is, and I'm using inverted commas here, but, you know, what trauma is not that bad, so to speak. Can one lead the other towards improvement? Do we have to move public opinion and have a sense of education, I suppose, about the average person on the street understanding the nature of sexual trauma and how damaging it can be. Does that have to happen first before we can shift the legal system? I think the two can go hand in hand, and I think you're right. I think there has been a lot of education about this over the past few years. I mean, as much as the Me Too movement in Australia has been hamstrung by punitive defamation laws and so on, it has done a lot to change public opinion, I think, and highlight some of these issues and challenge rape myths and challenge stereotypes. You know, I think if you went back even sort of 10 years, the idea that someone could go back to their abuser would seem like, well, what's wrong with this person? And there'd be a lot of victim blaming around that. But we now know through the excellent work that the Royal Commission did, for instance, that that is quite typical behaviour and it's all part of the grooming process, but also through the the Harvey Weinstein case, very, very good example of power imbalances and structures between men and women, particularly men who, you know, are very well-resourced and have power over those women that sometimes the women to make it easier, maintain a relationship despite the fact that they have been wronged. So I think we have come a bit of a way, but I think the challenge is to to reach those sectors of the community that aren't in the bubble that we, you know, that us three are in. We need to reach people who don't agree with us on lots of other things potentially and not to patronise those people. And that applies to some men in the law as well, like older men in the law, that we actually need to hear from them and speak to them. And that's one thing that I thought was really important to do for the book. And so I did speak to a lot of these older male defence counsel and women as well because I wanted to kind of get a sense of where they were coming from. And it was a really fascinating psychological process. So we need to reach the general members of the general public, but also really actively reach the profession. And I think they need a lot more professional development. At the moment, it's all a bit sort of opt-in, opt-out, and they can do the professional development on whatever they want so they don't have to do it on these sorts of issues. I think that would be an important step in helping educate them. Although speaking to, I mean, I spoke to a county court judge 
Meryl Sexton for the book and she kind of said, look, I, I do think that there, and I'm paraphrasing her here, so with apologies to the judge, but, you know, she said there are some people who we're not going to change. They're, they're going to be that way and we just have to wait for them to die out. But the new generation, certainly, we have to very, very carefully educate. And lawyers, I think, also need to be open and not do that I don't want to bring it all down to gender, but mansplaining thing they do. I mean, often I've had, you know, on social media, particularly on Twitter, when I sort of talk about a particular issue around this, you know, some male lawyer who's usually, you know, like, you know, sort of 55 plus will come in and say, well, I think you'll find that, you know, this would severely erode the presumption of innocence. And I'm like, yeah, I'm down with the presumption of innocence. There are there are other ways to skin a cat, you know. We have to be open to ideas because otherwise we keep dissuading victims from coming forward. Reporting rates are low and conviction rates will remain low. And, you know, I've said this over and over, but what does that mean? It means that people who rape children and women get away with it. Louise, you mentioned that we have to reach the people who aren't in the bubble that you and I and Jam occupy. So who did you write Witness for? Who were you trying to reach? Well, a big part of who I was trying to reach were the lawyers themselves and the lawmakers. That was a big thing. But I'd also like, you know, just ordinary members of the public who perhaps haven't been involved in this process in any way to read it and to be educated about what this process actually involves. Because I think for most of us, you know, who haven't been jurors or have never stepped inside a court, it's all a bit of a mystery. And just to sort of challenge some of the ideas that, you know, I think there's this sort of idea almost that it's like, it's like a debating tournament, you know, and the toughest guy wins. Well, who's going to be on the other side of that? You know, what's that going to do to the victim. And, you know, I use the word victim advisedly. I mean, all the research shows that false complaints are very low and largely confined to family court cases where it's one parent accusing another and the floridly mentally ill. So this idea that a lot of defence counsel have that there are a whole lot of people running around making false complaints, and I, I think that's the psychological space that they have to get themselves into to be able to do the work they do, but that's false. I mean, it's false, false, but it, it's not true. I wanted to ask what seems like a really simple question, but why a book? Because... You're a journalist of incredible reputation. You've got a lot of avenues where you could tell these stories or dissect these issues. Why write Witness as a book rather than bring it to us as a television program or in some other medium? Well, I think television is a very powerful medium and particularly for corners. Like I'm very lucky to work for a medium where, or to work for a show where on a Monday night, if you've got the right issue, all of Australia will sit up and take notice and the rest of the media will follow up for two weeks, you know, or more. And it will make change and it will, in some cases, it'll cause a, a Royal Commission to come about or in the case of the St Kevin's story that I did for Four Corners, which is also in witness in a longer format, it changed the entire management structure of that school and the whole culture. So yes, television is an amazing medium, but sometimes you need more space 
to really flesh out the arguments. And you can't fit as much as, you know, 45 minutes of television is a lot of televisual real estate, but it doesn't, you still have to leave a lot out. And there was a lot that I left out of that St. Kevin story that ended up being in the book that were really important issues, but it was sort of too meandering to sort of fit into one documentary. But some of the things that I plucked out ended up being incredibly important, including what happened to Paris Street, the victim in the Sir Kevin's case in the witness box when he too was cross-examined by Robert Richter as a 15-year-old. His experience was very similar to mine in the sense of the techniques employed were the same. I couldn't believe that a 15-year-old would be treated in the same way. So that was a really beneficial thing, I think, for me to be able to sort of draw out in a book. The other thing is there were things that we discovered during the Four Corners process and afterwards that went into the book, including that there was a discovery of a teacher who knew about, it seemed, it seemed, knew about prior bad behaviour by the athletics coach who had groomed Paris Street. Well, just in recent days, relevant parties have been sent a letter saying that that teacher is now being investigated as a result of the information that was ventilated in witness. So that's very satisfying. You know, you can make change. And certainly I felt that I was able to do that with my previous book, Cardinal, as well. I mean, so many people have written to me and said, you helped me come forward. You gave me the courage to come forward or thank you for exposing what I knew was there. So I think a book is a valuable thing. It's also got that permanence of a, you know, historical document. And also I love writing and I've been in television for, you know, since what, 2004 now. And as much as I like writing for TV, I miss that sort of longer form style of writing. And so, you know, for purely selfish reasons, it's a a pleasurable way, thing to do. In some ways, it's also an incredibly frustrating and exhausting thing to do. I have no doubt it is exhausting, Louise. One final question from me. The book has been out for a few months now. Have you had any response from Robert Richter himself? Not a peep. I haven't heard a thing. Yeah, so interesting very. Yeah, I don't know whether he's read it. I know people on his floor have read it <laughs> because Peter Morrissey, who is the barrister who represented me when I was a witness, I certainly sent it to him and he read it and he took it on board. He's a, he's a lovely man, but, you know, he's probably done little bits of this himself as well at times. I mean, I remember someone saying to me, you know, during my research for witness, I was, you know, going on about, you know, how much I love Peter Morrissey. He was so great to me, blah, blah, blah. And this barrister said to me, you wouldn't want to be cross-examined by him. But anyway, he's read it. A number of other people on that floor have and a lot of barristers seem to have um, and solicitors. So I don't know whether Robert has or not. I would like him to look into his heart. I know he apologised, for instance, for when he, you know, described alleged offending as plain vanilla sexual penetration. 
And his justification around that was, you know, in the heat of the moment and he was angry and disappointed about his client being convicted and all of that sort of stuff. And I, under, I understand that, but just the fact that he ever used that phrase that was in his head, that he could ever minimise potential offending in that way, I think says a lot about how he thinks about this stuff and, and the cognitive dissonance that he has enabled himself to employ and I hope that he reads it and I hope that he takes it on board. But certainly, I mean, you saw there was a letter that Paris Street wrote to him asking him the same thing in the book, begging him, talking about the cognitive annihilation of my 15-year-old brain. And Richter's response to him was jaw-dropping. I mean, he basically told him to stop defining himself as a victim and get on with his life. So... You like to sort of hope for the best, but sometimes, you know, people are who they are and what can you do? But maybe it'll make other barristers think. And if it makes a few barristers think, and I have had a lot of correspondence from lawyers, from solicitors, from barristers, from, you know, various people associated with the profession and the system who really thought that the work was valuable, who thought that the ideas were things that could work in the system, like having a lawyer for complainants, for instance. So, you know, I think that's a good thing. Just got to just keep, keep pushing, 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 you know, don't give up. Louise, thank you for pushing. <laughs> thank you for bearing witness to so many of these events to sitting in courtrooms and listening and outside of courtrooms, I'm sure, and talking and making sure people feel heard and also for the empathy that you clearly bring to, I think, a world that is devoid of a lot of that empathy. The legal world is lacking in empathy a lot of the time. And thank you for talking to us today. No problem. Thanks, Jamila. And thanks, Astrid. I really appreciate the time. And yeah, empathy, that's that's the word that I just want everyone to think about. That was the devastatingly clever and passionate Louise Milligan, who I have no doubt, despite all of the adversity that she has faced being up close and personal with the legal system for two decades now, will continue to hold the rich, the powerful and the wrongdoers to account. That's all we've got time for today on Anonymous Was a Woman. If you enjoyed this interview with Louise Milligan, please get your hands on a copy of Witness. And if you enjoyed listening to us and the questions that we asked, please subscribe to Anonymous Was a Woman wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, if you can rate and review it, it helps other people find this podcast and it means we can talk more human beings into reading and writing books. That sounds pretty good. 